Hello and welcome back to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. Today's episode, I'm going to be honest with you, is very anticipated for me as much as my guest that I've got on today. Uh, he wanted to come on the podcast such a long time ago now, it's what it seems a long time ago, back when I did a review of Malcolm and Marie, the Netflix film that was originally going to be a co-discussion between myself and this young man here that I've got with me today, but unfortunately... And I, I feel like this is a pretty good excuse due to outstanding commitments that he had and sort of last minute plans that came into place in the film industry. I feel I can let him off on this one. And, he, you know, when that sort of offer comes up, you've got to say yes to that. But he did make a promise to come back on Take 97 and he has come back today very graciously to discuss one of his favourite well, many of his favourite films, really, to be honest. We're discussing a trilogy today, a trilogy of films centred around the East Rail 177 incident. For those of you, that's a little clue out there before we get started. And it is consisting of the three films, Unbreakable, 2000, Split, 2016, and Glass, 2019, all directed by M. Night Shyamalan, the twist central director that we all know and love, because we all know he sees dead people in his spare time, or at least that's what I've heard. Uh, I'm just going to get on, I'm waffling a little bit now, but I'm just going to get on to it. My guest today uh, to discuss the East Rail 177 trilogy is the one and only independent filmmaker extraordinaire and connection to the film industry who I will be asking for tips after the podcast, Spencer Anderson. How are you doing, Spencer? I'm doing well, David. I, I have to say that was, I did not find that waffling at all. I felt like <laughs> a fantastic introduction, not only in the films that we were talking about, but also uh, one that I'm so gracious to have attached to my uh, name and title. So I know I really appreciate that. Thank you for bringing me back to this. No problem at all. Main point of having you on today, though, is because I noticed you. So for anyone who knows and maybe follows Spencer on his social medias or even has him as a friend on Facebook or anything like that and follows his trails as a filmmaker you'll notice he loves posting film reviews every once in a while as well specifically when he goes to the cinema because you know we both love cinema here and I noticed that he posted a review of Glass and I it sort of intrigued me to see what your opinion was of the East Rail 177 trilogy and to be honest with you I find this trilogy very fascinating in multiple ways and I enjoyed it both as a piece of popcorn cinema as I like to call it and also cinema that's made with intent and intense messages and great you know cinematography and everything like that tell us a little bit about yourself and sort of link us in to our main topic today of this trilogy of M. Night Shyamalan films so tell us a little bit about yourself first of all and who you are and what you do and then your general liking for this these kind of films and specifically this trilogy what sort of interested you about them enough to write about them and just start this conversation with me yeah of, of course my dude of course um so yeah as as david has already introduced me uh, my name is spencer anderson i have been a filmmaker i would say film director writer uh for the past six years ever since finishing my high national diploma in media studies at college it was it's weird actually because when i first went to college at around 17 i always said to myself i want i want to be a filmmaker you know i want to be like the next like you know Christopher Nolan or Edgar Wright those were the sort of directors that I really looked up to at the time you know I hadn't even at that point I hadn't even discovered like Stanley Kubrick Alfred Hitchcock or you know all of these you know great filmmakers that you you start to learn about but it was it you know like I always said this but like I never really did anything about it you know I was I was more of a talker rather than an actual doer 
And not to kind of bore you too much, but basically uh, something happened to me when I was around like 20 and it just gave me this like epiphany. Um, so, you know, it, I, 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 I'll let you in. Like it was, it was a tragic breakup that I experienced. I kind of felt that in this, in this breakup, I felt that my, cause I, I, I have Asperger syndrome myself. So I kind of felt that my Asperger syndrome kind of like was a hindrance on this relationship and kind of like actually parted us away from each other and I felt like it was kind of didn't allow me to really connect with my partner in a sense so it's, it's always been something that's really kind of affected me and then like I felt like after it inevitably we inevitably split like I felt like really down on myself about the breakup and like how I'd kind of like I sort of felt like I was sort of using it as like a guilt trip like you know kind of like blackmailing her to like stay with me because because, because I felt like I I just kept using it as a crux in a sense so I then had an idea to make a film about what I'd sort of experienced and like all of my feelings and it was called Disconnected and like I had like a, you know, like I had this cast of me who were like, you know, friends that I'd met along the way uh, through my ex-partner who were very gracious enough to um, come along on, bo like on board for the movie and that. There was like, I remember at the time, there was like a lot of opposition about making this movie, which you can understand, you know, once you sort of hear like, oh yeah, someone's making a film about their ex-girlfriend, you immediately think like, what, what are they going to make a movie about? But once people and my ex-partner at the time actually found out what the movie was about and it was actually kind of like uh highlighting what I'd been doing and how I'd kind of been using my disability to kind of imprison someone um she actually was very sympathetic about the whole thing and then she became very supportive for me to do the project to you know to you know that, that's the truth of the matter you know she was she was actually very supportive in the sense that she always like even though I was kind of like self-destructive and quite um, self-deprecating at the time. She was always very supportive of me just really focusing on my dreams and focusing on being a filmmaker because at the time I wasn't doing it. After meeting her, it kind of then, that kind of, you know, she kind of became my inspiration then in a sense. She kind of, mm. you know, she really kind of uh, directed me, she put me in the right direction. So from there on, I made this film Disconnected, which I sent off to college and it was probably the first film I'd ever got like a, a merit for because like, all the times before I was such a slacker, I was sending in films like so late. But then by the time I then got to uni university in Southampton and then I started to really rediscover myself and, you know, I came across as this like really motivated person and I was just so driven to just make as many films as I possibly could. Obviously, you know, whenever you make a film, there's a, there's going to be some, you know, failures along the way. That, but, that, but that's what happens though. Once you, once you make more films and you, you learn along the way, you start to grasp like what your strengths are as a storyteller. Um, and that's mm. what I started to do. So then I had like two years down the line at university when I was doing my masters, I had like films like Fallen and April and Line of Sight and my oh, new one, yeah. Satellites, which I've recently shot as well, you know, besides Satellites, those, those three have gone on to do like really well with like film festivals mm. and they've, and they've got me work within the industry. So yeah, that, that that's kind of really, if I'm honestly speaking, that's kind of really been my path really ever since I was 20, that huge epiphany that, that happened to me. But to kind of go further on to kind of put that into what I love about M. Night as a filmmaker, I feel like M. Night is is someone who really takes risks and is very personal in like his in, in his stories and that. You, and you, he'll have like massive hits like The Sixth Sense, you know, Unbreakable, which has gone on to be a cult following or mm. even Signs as well. I mean, I, I, I personally have a soft spot for The Village. I know not everyone likes The Village, but I personally mm. have a little bit of a soft spot for it. I think like, you know, some of the 
bits within the end and are, are, are not so great. But I think the, the so, some of the elements really do work. But like, yeah, even with his films that really didn't work, like The Happening, The Last Airbender, there was definitely a voice that was there, you know, uh, whether you love it or hate it, there was definitely his singular voice. It was always him. There was no like corporate individual who was trying to sort of, you know, control it and kind of trying to make it something accessible to the public. It was always going to be M Night. That was always going to be, be the way he was going to do it. What is it that you love so much about the East Rail 177 trilogy? Obviously, you've mentioned briefly, obviously, Unbreakable has gone on to gain a cult following of sorts. And obviously, lots of people loved Split when it came out in general. Glass has divided people a little bit in, in general, overall critics and audiences. But what would your sort of overriding comments be about the trilogy as a whole? I think as a whole, I think that I think especially I'll I'll start with Glass. Actually, I'll go I'll go back to front. I think Ooh. with Glass, the reason why I think that that movie was so divisive amongst people, I, I feel it's for the very same reasons why Unbreakable was very was kind of divisive at the time. Uh, because with Glass, it was it was advertised um, to be this like you know hotly anticipated like action superhero like thriller. And instead, it was more of a, you know, it was very much more of a slow burn. You, you have those initial 15 minutes, which kind of feels like a, uh, you know, like a Batman and Robin like storyline going on with like David Dunn and his son. You know, they're working at this like um, security firm called um, Dunn Security. They're kind of like, uh, you know, interrogating people that are like, you know, like causing harm to others. And, you know, David Dunn just goes straight in and just, you know, teaches them a lesson the hard way. And, you know, you feel like you're kind of going to get that especially when he first encounters Kevin Wendell Crumb. And I'm just thinking of that really beautiful shot, you know, like that, um, that dolly shot where it just like pans, it just like quickly pans across and you just see like mm. David Bond just sort of turn at a 90 degree angle. And it's, it's so reminiscent of that shot from Unbreakable. Yeah. Where he comes into the, uh, the orange man, as they call him. Yeah. Um, and yeah, when they have that sort of big fight, it's almost like these like two gods like fighting with each other. You know, I know it's like with a table set, you know, like, uh, you know, Kevin, as soon as Kevin's like, uh, you know, climbing up the ceiling towards David Dunn and then like he drops down and he just like lets out a huge like roar before grabbing the table and yeah. launching a crossover and the girls are just so scared. And then like David Dunn just like catches it. And it is just like these two gods just like throwing like a skyscraper, you know, back and forth or something. That's yeah. the kind of imagery I kind of got, even though it was like more restrained and more grounded to being something a bit more tangible in reality as such. Overall, I would say that I think that Glass was so, for me, I feel like it's so, it was so good to kind of see Mr. Glass's arc like come to a sort of end you know like mm. ev everything had sort of been resolved the way that he he'd fulfilled his purpose from from the very first film because the first film he caused all these atrocities you know on a train on a building at an airport on a plane you know he caused all these atrocities to just find that one person who was on the opposite spectrum of him and it just it just it just seemed so fitting that his whole plan sort of comes together to just watch these two gods just fight outside a Raven Hill hospital of all places. Yeah. Um, then it's like make... um, what he was saying about like, uh, it's the phrase that he uses. So like, uh, just to sort of briefly, if anyone's like, doesn't know the trilogy or anything, obviously like we've touched on already, it is a superhero comic book slash thriller film genre of sorts. It, it's very different from your 
your Marvel DC films because if you watch Unbreakable it you know it's all about and I always go back to this phrase that Samuel Jackson uses um, a collection of characters Uh, and it's the fact that like that scene that you mentioned in Glass itself the arc of Samuel Jackson's character from Unbreakable through to Glass obviously he's he's not really he's not in Split really but in Glass he is just there as the observer and the guy to take it all in saying the collection of characters he's got a certain grandiose about it he's watching his creations as he says as it were because he is the mastermind behind it all and i just think that that with that sort of grandiose performance that sam jackson gives you get a really great sense of closure then for his character the other two on the other hand james mcavoy and bruce willis they just literally just have fun with it you can make stories forever in a day like not saying that arcs aren't closed or anything but i would say highly that you know you can see further adventures with david dunn the possibilities are endless with kevin wendell crumb with the multiple personalities which is the basis for split the uh, the did so disassociative identity disorder which kevin suffers from i think for one of the characters out of like these three films to actually have a good sense of closure in a badass villain kind of way like a comic book would but with a bit of a different edge to it i really enjoyed that that's what i enjoyed about it i've gone off topic slightly but that's what i sort of take from your point that you just made there about that scene that massive slam down outside the ravenhill hospital and also when you describe them as gods it always makes me think of Batman versus Superman, even even though it's completely different. It always gives me Batman versus Superman vibes when someone goes, it's the battle of the gods. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, no, for sure. Definitely. No, I think that I think Glass is going to be a film that is going to be reviewed in later years. And I think people are going to, you know, I think people are gonna, I think it might develop as a as a cult following in later years, because I think Unbreakable mm. was, was definitely a film that at first, you know, because, you know, it was coming off the heels of The Sixth Sense. So, you know, everyone mm. was really, you know, anticipating what M. Night was going to make next. And then, you know, the fact that it happened to be that the trailers were kind of alluding it was going to be like this ghost story again, you know, this guy that had survived a train crash. Like, what's what's this all about and then when people watch it they realize like this is a superhero movie like what you know like what the hell and you know superhero movies weren't as weren't as like popular as they are now i mean you had like Mm. some batman franchise which was which was dying at the hands of joel schumacher um you know rest in peace yeah dude yeah he made some other great films but you know even he apologized for batman and robin which i Absolutely salute that man for doing. Yes. Please <laughs> yes. circulate that clip one more time, internet. Please circulate it one more time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, yeah, you know, at that time, you know, th- those sort of movies weren't very popular. So it was a very, it was a very niche uh, topic for M. Night to touch upon and to kind of dress it up as like a, as like a drama, very mm. like uh, Hitchcockian, like introspective look on a, on a working class man and, and his family. And, you know, just seeing him kind of struggle with identifying who he is. Very quiet, he's a very somber man. You can feel like, especially like looking into his eyes as well, you can feel there's a lot of loss there, a lot of like a sense of urgency, but he just doesn't know what to do with himself. And it's only until he comes across Mr. Glass and then he realizes 
is as to who he actually is and he's been kind of hiding that for so long you know he even you know when when you even go see him go into the uh his wardrobe to kind of get like old newspaper articles out of a, of a car crash and like a gut and like you know he gets the, gets the gun out and like you know he's just looking at all of these articles and just you know trying to like reminisce as to you know has he, has he ever been sick like did he actually injure himself in that car crash is what everyone's trying to tell him he did because for him he just he feels he he should have you know he feels like he should have been injured he feels like he he should have been hurt harmed in some way but he obviously hasn't yeah and i would say actually leading on from that because people bash m night Shyamalan for his oh he's got to have a twist ending at the end of every single one of his films oh he's such a terrible filmmaker because he always has to include that one thing at the end like yeah it's a little gimmick that he likes to do but to be fair at least i'm not going to have a seizure like when i watch a a jj abrams film from the like the flares or anything from an m night Shyamalan film you know at least if it's a twist it's a twist it can be disappointing it can be good uh, either way i'm not gonna like be blinded by the end of the film no offense jj but uh <laughs> but like i do think that with um with that film but carrying on from your point sorry about david dunn bruce willis's character it's that sense of uh, he is really such a well-rounded character you think of the description of him oh he's a man he survived a train crash and then in his backstory oh he's he's all superhuman then and he becomes such a well-rounded character because like you say behind the eyes of Bruce Willis is testament to Bruce Willis really as a character actor as well as the direction of M. Night but like I do think that he's got that sense of I don't know not age behind him but that kind of sense of experience behind him even though he's not like ancient then. I mean, I feel like by glass, when we get to glass, we get that sense of he's seen it all. He's been there, done that kind of thing. But whereas in Unbreakable, you still get that, even though this is the beginning of his journey with the audience in this cinematic universe that has been created for this trilogy by M. Night. But I I think that with David Dunn, he's got all that pain and torture and anguish. And he's finally, because the alter ego that he assumes is his way of releasing this pain and torture that he's been experiencing privately in his like personal life. And now he's able to feel like he's, I don't know, attaining a sort of justice for the rest of the world by expressing his want for justice and helping others really using his pain and torture behind his eyes uh, that we see clearly through Bruce Willis. And just linking very quickly back to what you said, people expecting this to be very much oh it's going to be a ghost story because it's the sixth sense and he survived a train crash is he going to be dead again i feel like that was just a sensationalized thing that everyone in the early 2000s so 2000 1999 everyone you know got sixth sense fever they really really wanted him to be back as another dead guy uh i i feel like it's the same sort of thing as like nowadays where people want the same ending for like a superhero film they they want that security they want that security and um no like not predictability but that sense of comfort then that we get from some forms of cinema and because the sixth sense was such a success with bruce willis ironically in the lead role as well as a dead guy walking Sorry, guys, who haven't seen The Sixth Sense. I do apologise. I didn't even issue a spoiler warning. You should know this by now. Um, <laughs> but um, so, yeah, any film students, yeah, he sees dead people. We, we get that point. Uh, but the main, the, any M. Night film, like, is going to be spoiled in this. In this yeah, film. we're just going to spoil it all for you. You know, yeah. you, you should have read the description before you signed up. We're going to continue with that. But yeah, the main point being,
being is with M. Night Shyamalan. He's had such a big hit with The Sixth Sense. And obviously lots of people do like Signs as well. But I think Unbreakable really sort of breaks the mold in terms of setting him up as a filmmaker and a storyteller then. Because I feel like we're, M. Night is very much a storyteller at heart. What would you say? Like, he has his visuals but uh, and like the ideas in mind to tell his stories because he is a director after all, a film director. But what would you say about, would you say he has more of a strength for his story components or the direction of actors? Like, what would you say personally you think his strengths are as a director? Even though like you're, you know, you love his films, but would you say in an objective standpoint that you feel like there are some areas he could be better at that others that he is far more worse at in that respect that he could be seen as needing improvement then? Yeah, I would definitely say, um, you know, I think it's always important for any of us as um, filmmakers or, or artists in general to kind of understand our strengths and our weaknesses and where we can sort of improve in that in that respect. Um, I definitely do feel that he, M. Night's skill is more behind the camera and more with the direction of actors. I feel like that's mm-hmm. where his strengths do lie. Because I think he's able to get some really strong performances out of actors. And I think the way that he moves the camera and the way that his films like transition ever so elegantly I would say um compared to compared to like his script writing I also think as well that I think his early days and this is this is a testament to that, that a lot of, of us filmmakers have to understand is that we all came from somewhere at the end of the day do you know what I mean mm, so I feel yeah. like M. Night when he was starting out he would have had like a reasonable amount of executives and studio heads kind of overlooking his work and picking out bits like yeah I think that works I don't think that works as much I think that is kind of probably evident with the Sixth Sense Unbreakable signs and then you know when you get to a point when you are seen as this powerful auteur which M. Night was I mean he was being quoted as being in the next Spielberg in a, in a magazine after after uh, to, um, after shooting signs. The, the power does get to your head. And I think that if that's not like, that isn't put on a leash, then your ideas can kind of go a little bit wild, you know? You, you can end yeah. up like you know, having some really great ideas, but then also no, no one to kind of tell you otherwise. There's no one in the room to kind of say, I, I'm not I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably, that, that does show for me that I would say the script writing and kind of more the dialogue can sometimes be a little bit more clunky in, in a lot of yeah. his later work because he's kind of, it's just him writing it at the end of the day. There's no one else overlooking it. So yeah. that's what I would probably say if I was to be objective in how I sort of view M. Night's work over the years. But yeah, overall, what would, what would, you, what would you say, Dave? To be honest with you, I would agree with you on most of the points that you made just there. But I would say he does have his moments like like any filmmaker, really. They even in their darkest hour, there's still like those highlights that you can find in the midst of their later work where it isn't as good as their previous stuff. But I I keep mentioning this. I've mentioned this before. I'll I'll say it again. And it's only one little line, but I love the, the idea of the collection of characters. And I love the character of Elijah Price. Mr. Glass, I love this sort of megalomaniac kind of mastermind. He's the smartest man in the room and you you know it, he knows it. And the way he has control over everything, even though the entire situation is very chaotic then, it is very chaotic between, you know, the multiple personalities of Kevin Wendell Crumb and the Beast and all that shenanigans. Uh, and then David Dunn doing his like tough guy, rain man with the raincoat uh, doing that having this Batman versus Superman vibe thing going on. But I just think that 
Glass, I will admit, is very much in tune with what you were saying. The writing is not great in terms of the dialogue perspective. There's a couple of little diamonds here and there, but in terms of the dialogue and some of the story elements, it doesn't feel like he's done it for the sake of it because it does feel like he's done it with a purpose because we're not going to see Glass 2. We're not going to see Glass, the threequel or whatever other rubbish they could come up with. But that's the sort of thing that I would expect a studio had to come up with. Like, we need to franchise this, but... I feel like the ending of Glass was perfect the way it was. Saying that, though, I do think you could have just left Unbreakable and Split as two separate films. I mean, the little link that was in Split that you found connecting to Unbreakable, that moment with David Dunn and connecting those two characters and saying, look, this universe is the same universe and we're connecting these two films together. It was a nice little Easter egg for anyone who's a fan of Unbreakable and anyone who enjoyed Split. I would have equally been sort of freaked out if they decided to link up uh, the sixth sense and say that there was two Bruce Willis's walking around. I mean, I know that's possible sometimes <laughs> in real life um, where you get two people who look practically the same that aren't twins, but I would happily, you know, accept that as a tiny little nugget. But I think glass was the, I think it's because so much anticipation was built because split was such a strong, weird, wacky film. And I don't mean wacky in like a funny ha ha way. I mean, wacky as in, strange and mental in so many different capacities and unbreakable was a very well something that broke the mold with a superhero genre comic book genre then i i think glass was the ultimate thing that sort of kicked the bucket as it were and that's why some people like it because you know they're into their references and their cameos and stuff like that because we're used to that now because by this point it was out in 2019 so we're already used to the interconnected marvel cinematic universe and everything else in like television as well these in worlds that have been built by filmmakers and tv show creators but i do think that in my opinion it's a half and half situation the dialogue wasn't that great the story was a little bit flimsy in places but there were some nice connections to the other two films and at points it feels like the film was done literally just to blend in with the market of interconnected universes but i do kind of enjoy just watching it just for what it is and sitting back and relaxing and enjoying it as a film at the end of the day you know I can analyze it to death but at the end of the day glass was a bit of fun split on the other hand is very very dark I was going to sort of move on to this next point what your sort of opinion was on each of the films we kind of covered glass a little bit with you what would you say about um let's start with let's go in the middle shall we because I think unbreakable is the foundations glass Mm. is the finishing touch We haven't really mentioned too much about Split yet. So for anyone who hasn't seen Split, it's about James McAvoy, who, like I said earlier, he suffers from his character, Kevin Wendell Crumb, suffers from DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder, a form of that, uh, where basically he has, I mean, isn't it 23 multiple personalities, 23 personalities Uh, in the end, uh, I think? 23, and then it's 24 with the Beast included. What was your opinion on Split then as a film on its own? Because, you know, it is such an impactful, very intense film compared to the other two then I would argue in my opinion yeah it's it it definitely is um well I went to go see Split in the um Odeon cinema in Southampton Mm. while while I was while I was studying my um BA degree um in my third year and I went with uh, my housemates to see it and like we like me and my friend Scott in particular because we were we were massive fans of um, Unbreakable um, Mm. and we had no idea that this film was linked at all because I know it had like a 
I know it had gone around the festival circuit in like 2016 September time. Yeah. Um, so we we were we were seeing this four months later, January 20, 2017. As soon as we got to the opening credits, like I, I just looked to my friend Scott and I was like, oh boy, this is going to be this is going to be a good ride. I think this is going to be so good. Like this, you know, just this guy who who ends up taking these girls hostage, you know, and is just like dragging them across this like huge like cellar and just like imprisons them. Uh, it's just oh, this is going to be this is going to be so cool. And like you know, I I feel like the film itself, like there were just so many elements of like. Um, there was a lot of Hitchcock moments I felt, especially with like, you know, Psycho and, uh, mm. you know, just like all these different personalities that just uh, manifested uh, Kevin Wendell Crumb, which is James McAvoy's character. Um, I felt James McAvoy, that that was probably the performance of his career, to be honest, because um, yeah. any other yeah. actor could have made it like really, really like theatrical, you know, they could have gone, gone to town with it. But I feel like James McAvoy just preserved a lot of sincerity to each character. You know, he put in a lot of hard work into each different personality where you actually felt like you was actually talking to that single personality. And I love the way that you have like you have you have Cassie played by Anya Taylor-Joy. You have her using hunting techniques in order to kind of like escape from her imprisonment. Um, but then you've also got his um, psychiatrist who's also trying to work out as to who's like which personality is she actually talking to and you've got these two people that are trying to trying to, to interrogate him and it just all comes to an end like where you know he gets on that he gets on that train he's got the flower set with him and then he just like unleashes hell just by becoming the beast and then that that's that's it you know that that's that's our big antagonist and then by the time we get to the post credits you know it, well not a post credits it's kind of like just like a you know you have like the you have the split title and then it just goes straight into like a like a credit credit scene afterwards mm. and like when you just have that camera just in the diner just like saying about like you know the news is on and then it comes across that woman who's like a journalist and she's like yeah that kind of reminds me of that guy from 15 years ago and he killed a lot of people what was his name again and then you just hear like a little whisper mr glass and then as she just exits, you just see David Dunn right there in his security outfit. And me and Scott were just like, oh my God, what the hell? And you've got this unbreakable music, like just emerging into scene. It's just, oh man, like it just left like such a, oh, it was just such a pleasant ride, man. I absolutely loved it. You see, that's what I was saying earlier. Like literally, I feel like as much as Glass does fulfill that want and need to oh, we need to see it together. We need to, you know, it's connected. We need to see it. I kind of like the fact that, that that's the ultimate twist ending for M. Night Shyamalan. Mm -hmm. That's the ultimate mm -hmm. twist ending, that these universes are connected. That's all you're getting. But then we did get that nice sort of connection of, it wasn't really a twist ending. Again, spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen it. So please watch Glass and all of these films if you haven't seen them already. But the twist that basically Mr. Glass was behind. Obviously, we know he was behind the rail incident of the East Rail 177. Uh, <laughs> but the fact that it was actually all like, so it was the same, everything was the same. So the day that Kevin Wendell Crumb was split into these many pieces, these 23, 24 pieces then, was the same time that David Dunn was on that train. Like that in itself was a good enough twist and then obviously you get that ending where the villains parents as it were or like friends and family take on the world on behalf of their dead like friends family and you know everything that they've just experienced so the good guys are actually the bad guys that's the ultimate twist in the ending of glass like i just feel 
in theory is good but some of the executions weren't as great as they could have been and i feel like the punch from split was really good whereas glass was a little bit more mooted in places whereas yeah you could have got that nice punch from i was the guy behind it all along which sounds very classic evil mastermind like is the villain of the week from Batman. Catch you on next week's episode tomorrow night at Channel 7 at 7 p.m. or whatever it is. But I think that, yeah, there's a little bit of overkill in Glass in terms of the twist, but there's a, a little bit of a discord between M. Night's style of the other two. But then there's some payoffs here and there. Uh, as you can tell, I'm a bit sceptical about Glass, but I did enjoy it because of the style. And I wanted to go back to your point about seeing Split in the cinema. Now, I didn't see Split in the cinema. I I actually saw the opening sequence when I was at uni. I watched it for the first time. I think it was to do with a cinematography module I did at uni. And mm-hmm. um, Unbreakable, I'd just never seen. I just watched it at home. And then again, Split, I watched at home as well. But then Glass, I went to see on the big screen after I'd watched these. And I feel like M. Night, like you said, he's got a very big, strong presence when it comes to his visuals. And I just love the aesthetic and the way everything was set up and like even when i saw the trailer for it i loved the color scheme for it i love the color palette it really just it's strange to say for a dark thriller like dark comic book well anti-comic book thriller as it were it's very strange the color choices like for instance i'm looking at my copy of my blu-ray here right now i'm just going to grab it now and look at it like you look at the back of the like the Blu-ray covering, you see the shot of this, you know, this slam down from the opening sequence of David Dunn versus uh, Kevin Wendell Crumb as the beast. You've got these murky, dark, like shadowy tones, but in the midst of it, you've got these greens and purples and pinks, obviously purple from Mr. Glass himself from his fabulous outfit, I must say. It's mm-hmm. just the best villain outfit ever. Like, bugger off, Thanos. That is, you know, you are nothing compared to Samuel Jackson. There is no yeah, style. That's my, ne- that's my next Comic Con outfit for sure, Mister Glass. Yes, I mean to be honest, I think it should be anybody's because yeah, anybody who can carry that off, it just looks great. And on top of that, he looks like he's been electrocuted because of his mad hair. So you know, I think that's good <laughs> enough for me. That's good enough for me. But I just love M Night Shyamalan's films in general as well. Going back to him as a director, I love the fact that he's got this obsession with like these different colors that don't often get used. Like we see so many reds, we see so many like blacks and whites and like grayscale and all these like different tones that are associated with emotions like red for danger and anger and love. Uh, we see lots of blues as well, but in this one, we see quite a lot of greens and, mm. pur- and you know, obviously purple, like Mr. Glass, we see this strange dynamic and especially that the pink that you see in that hot, like the pink sort of tinge then, should we say that you get when you get all three of them lined up all like secured to their seats with, uh, what's her name? Is it Sarah Paulson? Sarah Paulson, the actress who plays uh, yeah. the doctor, doctor character in Glass, uh, the yeah, psychiatrist. Dr. Ellie Staple, her name is. As, yeah, Ellie Staple. Yes, that's it. And she's the, the way they're all lined up. It's just when I saw the trailer for the film, I was like, this is so different. And that's what really caught me is the visuals of the film and how eye popping it was. And because it's meant to be based around comic books in a way as well naturally comic books pop off the page they've got these bright fascinating like you look at any old superhero comics like the flash or superman or captain america iron man they all had bright colors on them and even though this is a darker side to comic books this is like the villain story i love the fact that you still got those eye-catching colors what would you say about the cinematography then or the aesthetic of the east rail 177 trilogy 
I'd say it's been pretty consistent, actually, especially because the original cinematographer for Unbreakable is obviously not present for Split and Glass. Um, mm. They had to get on a new guy who was the cinematographer for It Follows, funnily enough. Mm. Um, I am struggling to think of his name off the top of my tongue. But yes, the the, the director of photography of It Follows um, mm. was the one who did Split and, and Glass. But yeah, anyway, yeah, I feel like there is a very consistent um, visual tone. And I do think that the way that M. Night is able to kind of identify his characters with his colours says a lot about him as, as an artist. Like, you know, David Dunn is always wearing green. Wherever he is, whether he's out on the stadium and like, you know, you've got all the people that are queuing up, they're all like coated in green. Or like the actual, even his own locker room is green. Everything around him is green. That's his environment. That's that's what he understands to be. Um, and, you know, even his like, you know, um, you know, his raincoat, you know, his mm. poncho as it were, the man in the poncho. His poncho is even a shade of green as well. And yeah, like I just love how that is, that is just so present in like all of the films leading up to Glass. And I do feel that there is an element of, there's an element of richness. And I do like what you mean by the fact that with a lot of these traditional superhero films, it is a lot more vibrant colours. But instead, with with these films, it's a lot more it's a lot more grounded. It's a lot more restrained. It's like it's just it's not quite black and white, but it's just like tipping over to the edge of like a certain colour that you can identify with. I just I just love all that, and I just love the fact that. And this is probably going off uh, topic a little bit from from the from the colours and the cinematography, but I just love the fact that the, the way it's framed as well, it feels like it's framed like a comic book. You know, you've got like David Dunn, like stood out in that huge, like in where, where the stadium gateway is, you know, he's got that, he's that huge pillar around him um, as he's watching like these guys play football and it's just like raining down, it's hammering it down with rain. And it just, the way it's framed, it just looks like a comic book panel. It's just so beautiful. And even when you've got like David Dunn and Audrey like sat down having a meal together and then the camera like presses on, that also feels like right out of a comic mm. book as well. And you've got all of these like ancient like illustrations like in the background too. But yeah, sort of going back to what I think about the colours and the cinematography, I think that it, it's, it's just a testament to just M. Night as a, as a filmmaker really for me, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, you brought up something that sort of made me remember something as well, is we talk about the colour purple from Mr. Glass. I do feel like in that respect, I feel purple makes me, whenever I think of comic books and I think of purple, there is only one character, one villain that I can think of. Uh, obviously his latest incarnation, was a little less purple orientated. He was a little bit more yellow and red. But the classic 1989 look of Jack Nicholson's Joker from Batman, the Tim Burton Batman, I can't help but feel like that, even though I'm, it's probably a wild, massive out there thing, I'm sure that M. Night had, he'd seen that or he'd thought of that when thinking of how to dress Mr. Glass in his final outfit then uh, and dress him in that regal purple that purple that just sort of stands out as villainy and has a little bit of class. And the other thing that stands out to me as well, you talk about the comic book paneling as well. I feel like, you know, it's not quite Frank Miller, but there are definitely undertones of Frank Miller in some of the, like the dark, gritty, vivid imagery that is portrayed, especially the, like you mentioned, the, the rain. Anytime it rains and you see David Dunn in, in the screen, like for instance, I think when you have the fight between David Dunn and uh, Kevin Wendell Crumb right at the end of Glass, 
Uh, and also, you know, at, in the beginning, actually, of Glassery, when they first sort of meet before they get captured by Dr. Ellie Staple and the team at the Ravenhill Hospital, with the rain pounding down, it feels very Frank Miller. It feels very, very Sin City in a way, if that makes sense. Even, you know, like this is com- a completely different film, but it makes me think of like that hyper stylized reality that you get from a Frank Miller comic book and also from the likes of you know, a Sin City story or any of the Batman comics that came out in that tenure with that specific style in mind. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely agree, dude. And I and you you just made me remember when um when um David Dunn actually goes to track the Orange Man and they're mm-hmm. just like, you know, the Orange Man is just like walking back to the house that he's uh you know uh, that he's uh you know pretty much just like taken hostage of the family you know he's, he's back at his house and then you've got like David Dunn just like following across and you've got that beautiful score as he like he comes like he emerges from the staircase and he just like looks over and just sees the orange man like going to the post like collecting the family's mail and then just goes in as if it's his house and then like the camera just like presses in on David Dunn just with that music just like dun 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 <laughs> I don't know why I had to use done to kind of emphasize the score there but I guess it was quite fitting it's very fitting we'll we'll go with that we'll go with that <laughs> yeah 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 but like you say though like um you know it is it really does like feel like you know it's out of a comic book it's like definitely a lot of like Frank Miller staples around especially that there's that one silhouette shot as well of where David Dunn you know goes into the house and he opens the door and he sees the guy just literally just like laid dead with blood from his head and you know he gets his vision of like what of that being the same guy that the orange man attacked and then as he closes the door and then goes up the stairs the telly's playing it's just that it's just like it's just like so it's just so breathtaking like all mm. of the visuals are just so yeah. are just so wonderful i want to ask you i'm going to be really really push you for this each film name me your favorite moment from each one you probably already sort of touched on it already but unbreakable what's your favorite moment so my favorite moment in unbreakable is the very final fight scene between David Dunn and the Orange Man. It's just like one long shot. It's one long shot of literally just a guy headlocking, of David Dunn headlocking the Orange Man and literally just being flown around like the whole room to the point where even the Orange Man like, you know, manages to like push him against the wall and you just see the wall impounded and that gives you an impression of David Dunn's strength and his bone density, you know, because we've seen this guy survive, you know, a train derailment, but now you're actually seeing his body like go up against the wall and just, you just encave it completely. It's just like, it's just so powerful. And then when it gets to the end with the score, and then like you know he go like he's literally just got him down he's you know he's, he's, he's killed the guy he puts him aside and then he, and then it's so sad when he goes over to uh the mother who's literally just been handcuffed and he tries to get you know he undoes her cable tie and then by the time her hands go down she just lies across on the floor man it's just really really sad but that mm-hmm. is that is my favorite moment from unbreakable that that level of justice that level yeah. of you know it's that moment where david dunn is like yeah this is who i am this mm. is who I am. I am. I am. I am a superhero. Yeah, and I, I love that moment as well. But for me, and as simple as it sounds, but for me, my favorite moment from Unbreakable, actually, I have two. I have to cheat. I have two. One's my main favorite. The other sort of my second favorite. Second favorite. I'll start off with first is, it's the moment. It's the aftermath of the train crash. I just love how 
it's the realization and the emotion that you see Bruce Willis's character of David Dunn go through that turmoil of like that guilt that he feels that like did no one else survive what's going on and like the confusion going through his head like I just love the acting that is demonstrating the direction that is given for that scene I just love it it's so simple yet effective but my main sort of thing that I do love is the villainy of Mr. Glass I, I love that ending moment that sort of like it, it feels a bit underwhelming when you first watch it but when you watch it again that sort of reveal of him as this the guy in the mastermind chair like I feel like the reveal of him as a villain it's not quite I am going I would like you to die Mr. Bond slowly it's not quite as villainous as Blofeld or anything like that but I do think <laughs> I do think that that ending that cold ending is very interesting and I like the way it's different to other twist endings that we've seen or just endings in general of a reveal of a villain. So I think those two are my sort of top favorite bits. And Bruce Willis does a fantastic job in this film. Favorite moment from Split, if you could pick one. I know there's probably many, but pick if you could just choose one maybe that's a highlight. Okay, fast. Now that's quite difficult. I've not, I've not actually thought about what my favorite uh, scene from Split would be. I, I, a part of me wants to go with the twist ending, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's fair because I feel like that mm. is more of like a, not an attachment of sorts, but that's more, that's more to do with its like connection. That's like saying like your favorite scene from a Marvel film is the post-credit scene. You, you, you can't really justify that. You have to pick a scene from the movie itself. Yeah, I would probably say my favorite scene is of when there's this. It's literally once um, Kevin Wendell Crumb has become the Beast and he's chasing um, Cassie, who's, you know, she's got hold of the shotgun and, you know, she's trying to shoot him down and, you know, the bullets are just bouncing off of his body. Like one manages one manages to go through. And then there's that moment where he goes to the um, to the to the uh, to the cell bars, oh. tries to break them. Yeah, he like literally tries to tries to break them so hard. And like literally Anya's like uh, Cassie is just like, you know, so scared and bewildered. But then as soon as he notices the the scars like around like her around her stomach area, like from where she'd like been self-harming, he then has this like realization that she's also like when he says like, you are different from the rest. And then just mm. sort of like, you know, laughs to himself and he's just like, rejoice. <laughs> yeah and he's going to defend the broken and then he just yeah. like he just sort of dis he just disappears he just leaves her because like mm. he knows that she's also there's that connection between them where he knows that she suffered um as much or even possibly even more than he suffered oh yeah no absolutely i do i love that that's the, the connection i think one sort of point for me for split i love the connection between those two it's a very interesting connection between those two characters they're very you wouldn't expect it, it like if you put it on paper but to see it on screen with those two actors I feel like it was done very good justice in that respect for me is but more importantly for me I can just sum it up by saying the 23 plus beast but mostly the 23 those are my favorite that is my you know it's a multiple thing multiple personalities multiple mm -hmm. favorite moments I can't really pick one I just love the multiple 23 I love all th 23 of them 24 is okay it's a bit scary but uh 20 <laughs> the, the other 23 they are lovely lovely chaps and chapesses uh <laughs> they are brilliant people and i just enjoy the multi-faceted performances uh given or performance but by james mcavoy that's all i can say about that and leading on to glass my favorite moment from glass i, I love the ending fight scene between 
The Beast and David Dunn. I've said that many times already. And I love that collection of characters moment, that villainy that you get from that final push of Elijah Price's master plan finally coming into fruition, exposing the underworld of these people who have existed for ages, trying to eliminate the superhuman, the supernatural and everything all together. And I just, I think that respect, I love the tone of Glass and the shots of everything that's set up really. Glass, I think, I have a couple of key moments that I like that I just mentioned, whereas I think it's the acting in Split for me and then Unbreakable, there's, you know, key moments like any film, really. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I suppose I better, I better talk about what my favourite scene from Glass would be then. There is, there is, so, there is so much to pick from Glass because Glass is a very, it's a big movie, you know, it's mm. a lot bigger than both Unbreakable and Split. It's a huge, huge movie that has to tie in all of these different storylines together and that. I think for me, though, my favourite scene from Glass would have to be, I just love, I, I have to admit, like, even though I do love the resolution of Glass, I do... I do really love the first 15 minutes. I know that's kind of meant to be the MacGuffin of the whole movie, though. I know that's like, you know, you kind of think, oh, yeah, it's this it's this hotly anticipated superhero movie. And then it kind of, you know, by the time we get to the 15 minute mark, it then turns into a, a lot more of the slow burn movie, which you sort of expect from an M. Night Shyamalan film. Um, but I do love within those 15 minutes, you kind of do see where David Dunn has been, because that's the character that I think we've all kind of been yearning for to kind of see how he's doing and everything. Because, uh, you know, that was what was so special about the ending of, of Split was that oh David Dunn's here like that's so cool like wh where's he been what's he been doing and within that first 15 minutes you can kind of see he's you know he's a he's an outlaw but you know he's he's, he's protecting people and he's you know bringing justice to those that are causing harm and chaos for others and you know he's got his own security firm um, and you know you can see that you know he's been on the beast's tail for quite some time it's been about I believe about three weeks um, after the events of Split that you know him and his and his son who's now working with him are trying to track this guy down I love the moment you know like the sort of banter between him and his son like where you know he says to his son like you know okay um, once we catch this guy I'm taking mental health day <laughs> and then ir <laughs> ironic ironically it then does turn out that you know by the time he catches him he does take a mental health day. Well, mental health three days anyway. Yeah, three um, days. That's an, in an intensive course into uh, mental health awareness of his own state of mind uh, and, and, and just the bending of the mind. I mean, you know, submersion in water just to rub it in further. Yeah, that's so many things which we didn't touch on just now, but like there's so many things to unpack in this, but I feel like we've done it justice to a degree. I feel, I hope, mm -hmm. take 97 listeners and Spencer Anderson fans alike. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion today. I just want to say quickly before we conclude this, thank you so much, Spencer, for coming on. It's been an absolute blast having you talk about it. We could talk for literally hours about this. I feel we could do like an episode on each, to be fair. I just want to say from me to you, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. And I'm glad to have you as part of the Take 97 family now. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, bless you, man. I, I am honoured to be part of the Take 97 family. So honestly, thank you so much for bringing me on board for this. I'm so, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to have uh, contributed in some way. This is actually the first podcast I have ever done. So it's, it's been a blast. So yeah, no, thank you for bringing me on board. And because it, it's only fair that we let you plug, give us a little plug for your latest project and like where people can see it or any of your previous projects or like any updates or anything on what you're doing right now. You did mention them briefly at the beginning. You mentioned satellites, you mentioned April, you mentioned some of the others, any like latest news for you or any like big things that you're allowed to mention now relating to your 
current work that you've been doing recently? So recently, me and my my wonderful film crew, um, we had the opportunity to shoot a uh, film called Satellites, which is a micro short um, set in outer space uh, with our wonderful um, actor slash actress, Tamsin Murray, who was an absolute joy to work with. And you might have seen on my um, social media posts that she certainly became one of my favorite actors that I'd ever worked with she was just so lovely to work with she was so supportive and she was always game but she really felt part of the crew too um so yeah we got to shoot this film uh two weeks ago now uh Monday Tuesday and Wednesday uh on the Monday we shot over at a friend of mine's house and used it as like our docking station which went absolutely splendidly um the guys really did such a great job in just like the production design I really can't take any credit at all because they 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 went to town with it you know they really like blocked out the windows they made it feel like a futuristic like you know minimal clinical setting for where like an astronaut would be stationed like it just looked wonderful so thank you so much to my crew for that um we then shot down in snowdonia um the second day uh i I arranged for us to have a a bnb uh that very evening on the monday so we were up bright and early uh, on the Tuesday and we shot all day uh, there uh, for some of the uh, like otherworldly like unknown planet aspects of the movie and the shots look absolutely gorgeous and then on the third day we actually got to shoot over at uh, SAE Film Institute in Oxford uh, we used their studio space for some of our space shuttle scenes and we had this uh, really talented um, gaffer named Leon who'd been working hours endlessly on like our control panels which would be uh, reflected onto Tamsin's visor um, and it's pretty much just like um, like black foam cards and then like with little squares cut out to put like gels of different colors in and then just to have like a LED or like um, or like a dado right behind to just kind of shine it through to just reflect off of a visor and it just it just looks wonderful man as soon as as soon as we saw it come together because it was like to get all that together on the studio that day that was like probably about an hour setup but as soon as we had it um, on camera, it looked gorgeous, man. It looked like something out of 2001 Space Odyssey. I was just like, oh my goodness me, this is amazing. I, I so, cannot wait to see that. That sounds absolutely epic. That is all I'll say on that. <laughs> it's it's, it's, it's going to be good. We've got a really talented editor, uh, Lydia Mannerins, her name is. Um, she's worked on countless productions. She's worked on uh, Belfast, which is uh, Kenneth Branagh's film, which I also got an opportunity to work on as a research production assistant. And she's also working on the new uh, Mission Impossible film as well as a editing assistant. I can't wait to see satellites and see more images from it because, you know, April looked amazing. Uh, Line of Sight as well. That was your other short that you did as well with, uh, I think, in partnership with the Ultimate Pitch Palace in Oxford. You did some shots there as well, which looked absolutely gorgeous. I know a couple of people who worked on that short. It looked absolutely stunning. So, Spencer, just before we conclude, just give us a shout out to your uh, social media channels so people know where to find you and follow your work because it needs to be seen. So please shout out away. Well, thank you very much, David. Uh, My socials are people can find me on Facebook easily at Spencer Anderson. On Instagram, I am under Spencer Anderson 94 and people can check out my work there. I'm also on Vimeo, uh, just Spencer Anderson again. And then also for my website, it's Spencer anderson.net and people can email me call me and look at my previous work what i've done recently and generally just get in touch if you want to collaborate on some film projects in the future i'm always game to meet new people work with new people 
that's my whole strategy just you know working with you know we're, we're all in the same boat at the end of the day so you know we, we you know I want to collaborate with as many people as possible um, in order to elevate myself but also to elevate others as well um, that's what I always work by so yeah you can find me on all of those social media bits and yeah I look forward to hearing from you soon Thank you very much, Spencer. That's a wrap on Take 97, a film podcast, the East Rail 177 Trilogy edition of the podcast with me, your host, David Ingram, and Spencer Anderson. Thank you very much, guys. I'll catch you on the next episode. See you later. Peace. Take care.